I've got a gift here that I want to give to Eli. Go ahead and open that for us, Eli. Oh, yeah. What is that? It's a remote control 4x4 car, man. That's yours. How about that? How do you feel? For real? For real. <laughs> you good with that? Yeah. Good. I got this for you, too. Open that up and kind of say what that is. Oh, it's an invoice, right? Yeah. yeah. So you need to just pay me back oh, in 30 days. 30 days. So, no, that really is yours. You can share it with your brothers. But I wanted to do this to illustrate a point, right? <laughs> I'm serious. I'm dead serious. You're good. All right. It's a free gift. You know, a lot of times we understand when it comes to um, gift giving that when we get a gift that it really is a gift unless we get an invoice that says that we need to pay for this gift and we go, well, that's not really a gift, right? We understand that? It's hard for us to understand, though, and Heather, I'm going to go right in front of the microphone or the speaker again. It's hard for us to understand this when it comes to the free gift of salvation. The gift that God gave by sending his son, his incredible, perfect son, to become human, to live that performance that we couldn't live to die that death that we should have died. And he defeated death and he rose again, the thing that we couldn't do. And all he said is this, just like I gave that gift to Eli, that was unexpected, wasn't it, Eli? And you were shocked, right? Yeah. Just like that, God is saying, here, here is that free gift for you, my son. And what the way that we treat it a lot of times is that that free gift came with an invoice that says that I need to somehow do something to earn it. That I need to do something to atone for it. You know, that saying that I believe maybe Satan put on place in this earth is that if, it, if it's too good to be true, then it's probably not true, right? And that's not the case with, the, with this gift of salvation, this gift of becoming more like Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, this, we've been talking about the four life-changing truths about God. And this morning we're going to talk about that God is gracious. And before we get into those four life, before we get into this fourth one, I want to remind us again of where we've been these last uh, three Sundays before last Sunday. We've understood, right, that the root of all of our behavior and all of our emotions is at the heart. That what I treasure, what I trust, is then how I'm going to live out my life. And when we sin, we are believing the lie that we are better off without God. That his rule and reign over our life the, the gift giver is 
squashing or oppressive in our life. And that we would be um, freer without him in our life. And that sin uh, offers more than God ever could in my life. We see that in Romans chapter 1, 24 through 25, where Paul says that the people exchanged the truth about God for a lie. I mean, I may be envious or I may be anxious about money because I believe the lie that these things that I'm buying gives meaning to my life or because I believe that God doesn't care about me so I need something to make me feel better. I mean, not many of us think that we really go through our life believing a bunch of lies. But every time that we don't trust who God is, what he's done for me, who he was revealed through Jesus Christ, and who I am, that's all written down for us in the Bible, we're believing a lie. And these lies are, I don't trust God, I don't... Um, I don't believe that he really is sovereign, that he's in control. I don't believe his purposes are that good. Or I believe that I have to prove myself or justify myself in order to receive God's love for me. Romans 14.23 says that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And faith in what? And it's faith in God. Not faith in the Bible, but faith in God, which the Bible talks about through Jesus Christ. The problem for us as followers of Christ, as adopted sons, adopted daughters, is that the, there is a gap between what we believe in theory and what we believe, what I like to call from Monday through Sunday till 1030, what we believe in practice. And our life, after we've said yes to Christ, is really narrowing this gap between what I am hearing and what I'm reading and what I know intellectually, and narrowing this gap between that and what I, what I practice in my life. And that begins to take place, that change begins to take place when I really see the glory of God through the life of Jesus Christ. And when we begin to place our faith in him, that this truth will then, to begin, will then begin to set us free in our life. And it's more than just simply re receiving information. It's really recognizing him as this, as just like we talked about two weeks ago about the man who saw this treasure in the field and he went and sold everything he had so that he could buy this field. It's just like that, seeing Jesus, seeing God, as a treasure above everything else in our life. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, and this is his prayer that he gives, that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so we're not only to comprehend truth, but we're also to embrace it. And so we're talking about four life-changing truths a really powerful tool that will help us address most of the sins and emotions in our life that go against God, that which we struggle with. And so I'm going to, a little bit of a quiz this morning. 
Um, the first one I gave an illustration was the scale. And I'm not going to bring Travis up again. But what was the truth for this one? <laughs> Remember we had God on one side and, and me. God is great, exactly. So God is great so, so we don't have to be in control, absolutely. And the premise is this, is that whatever gets elevated is what is in control. So, right, so we have this low view of God, then what gets elevated is self. And everything that I do then needs to, is really self-motivated for my self-efforts and all that. When we begin to elevate God, then the converse is true. Self is lessened. And we begin to have this high view of who God is. When we begin to have this high view of who God is, and remember we talked about this spatial metaphor that Scripture uses, that God holds the universe, and we talked about what the universe is like. He holds the universe in his hand. I mean, that's our God. <laughs> and what we're saying when we elevate self and we're having a low view of God, that God, I can do better in my life than you can, even though... You hold the universe in your hand. And so that's the first one. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. The second one, somewhere in here. <clears throat> we use the candles, but he also used the mousetrap. What did we use the mousetrap for? Do you remember? This one might be a little harder. Maybe that'll wake you up. I want my finger. God is what? God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. And you remember when we said that when we also don't understand, and this builds on the whole God is great thing, we don't understand that God is glorious, is that we will begin to believe that God really doesn't love me. And so then I need to get my love from somewhere else, and so I will begin to fear others for what they think of me, for how they view me, and all of that. So then I will begin to live my life for their approval and to do things for them instead of understand that God is glorious, more glorious than a sunset, more glorious than a newborn baby, more glorious than anything that you can think of on this earth. God is infinitely more glorious than that. And I need to fear him rather than fearing others. And fearing others puts us in a trap. So that's the second one. The third one, we talked about a Snickers bar. So God is, God is good. So I don't need to. <laughs> no, that's not it. Because I like Snickers. Whoops. So God is good, so I don't need to look elsewhere. Exactly. Remember I talked about Snickers is what satisfies. And I said that's not true. Because when I eat a Snickers, it may satisfy me for a minute. In court, in my case, a, you know, an hour. And then I have to I go get another one. <laughs> right? But we're saying that God is good. When scripture says in Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good, that he is all satisfying, you don't need another Snickers, right? You don't need to look elsewhere. That is going to be all satisfying. We had, and we talked about the woman at the well, 
and the story that God says, I am the living water. Who wants the Snickers? I gave one to Mallory last time. Travis. What? Yeah. And be on this side. Way back there. Woo! <laughs> All right. So God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And today, God is gracious. When we think about God, we think about his kindness, his mercy, his compassion. But when we talk about grace this morning, it's, it means getting what we don't deserve. So that God is gracious in the sense that we're getting what we don't deserve. God gave us something that, we, that is not earned, that's not deserved, and that's his love and his acceptance. He fully loves and accepts you and I based on what Jesus Christ did, not what we do. And so we call that unconditional love. And we begin to live out our mission and our vision based on this security, based on the finished work of Jesus, instead of insecurity that depends on our performance or our need to atone for something. And so here's the statement. God is gracious, so I don't need to prove myself to myself or to others or to God. And I want us to look at the parable of the lost son in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, turn and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Or your phones or iPads or whatever you use. And I know that we looked at this a while ago, but we're going to look at it again. And we're going to maybe take a little bit different. We're going to focus more on the other son than on the prodigal son. But Luke 15 reminds us of the remarkable grace of God in her life. Remember the younger son asked for his inheritance to his father. And basically what he was saying to his dad is, I wish you were dead. And when he began to, when he moved, in essence what he was saying is, I reject you as my family. And then we haven't even really gotten to all of his wild living that scripture says that he did, which ended up him having to be someone who was feeding pigs. And that was about as low as you could go as a Jew, because pigs to the Jews were very unclean. And even lower in the sense of really desiring and wanting to eat the food that the pigs were eating. And I feel like this Son is a picture of you and I, right? We've, we've wished, and not maybe said this, but wished that God dead. We've rejected his love. We've moved as far from God as we can. And we've tried to break free from love, and we've ended up just like the son in the pigsty, um, longing to find satisfaction there amongst the mess. But when we read the story, the, the gracious love that the father had for the son is even more incredible. I mean, this probably, and we talked about this, and you know this, is this would have left the readers listening and reading this in really gasping for breath or shocked or in awe. If the son had asked the father his inheritance while the father was still alive, I mean, really, he would have been disinherited. The father would not have given that to him. If the son 
tried to break free from his father's rule, he probably would have been beaten um, there. If he left home to indulge in what scripture says that he indulged in, he would probably be disowned. But what we see in the story is that the father runs to his son. He doesn't wait for his son to run to him. The father runs to his son. And he doesn't wait for his son to honor him. He says, I want to honor you with a robe and a ring and a parting. We talked about those three things. And I want us to understand that this is our God. This is our father. This is your father embracing you, welcoming you, and honoring you. You know, I used to think that when, and sometimes I still struggle with this, when I know it here, but sometimes it doesn't come out here, is that when, when I let God down by sinning or, or well, sinning, that I, I would probably have some kind of bad day, or my prayers wouldn't go unanswered, or something bad was going to happen. And I assumed that God would act that way because generally... When people let me down, you know, I'll act either passive-aggressive or give them, you know, a cold shoulder or whatever it might be. Or I think that I need to make it up somehow um, by either feeling intense shame or by doing something and um, being miserable or praying for 14 hours or whatever it might be to make up for that. Because, in essence, what I'm thinking is that, Jesus, you didn't quite do a good enough job for me on the cross. And so there's this distance that we stand, that I stand before God. And all the while, he's waiting and ready to embrace me, to welcome me home, and to lavish his love on me. So if the story of the younger brother reveals God's grace, then the older brother, the older son, um, we see many characteristics of him of truly not believing that God is gracious. Luke 15, 28. Scripture says that the older brother was angry and refused to go in. He's angry because his younger brother is being honored. As if, and I'm sure you have all felt that, I'm sure I've felt that, as if that he was in the right, that what he did is just glossing over, and now here he's being honored. And it's like the older brother is going, all this work that I've done seems to count for nothing. And as the book title says, this grace that God demonstrated through the story of the father and his son that that is a scandal. That's the scandal of God's grace. Because without grace, we begin to view life as a contract between us and God. In other words, if, if we do good works, do good works, then <laughs> whoops. Okay, I'm not gonna say anything. We do good works, and in return, He's going to bless you and I. When things go well, we are filled with pride. But when things go badly, either we blame ourselves and we feel guilty or we blame God and we begin to feel better. Which then, so I couldn't, 
this is where to go. So I wanted to find, um, you know, that thing that's called Newton's ball, where you throw the, the, the metal ball and then it clicks and it clicks back. You know what I'm talking about? So I didn't um, think ahead and get one. So I'm going to just pretend that these are Newton's ball. Okay? So we, we like to think of um, our relationship with God like that. In other words, if, if God's going to love me, so that's weak, but that's kind of what we're talking about. If God's going to love me, then I've got to do something back to him. And it just keeps going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And what he's saying is that just like I gave that gift to Eli and to his family, and there's no strings attached to it, it's theirs, it's free, that when God loves me, whoops, I didn't do it, there we go, ah, there we go, did it. He says, stop, you don't need to do anything more to earn my love. You don't need to atone. You don't need to sit in prayer for hours and, and beat yourself and shame and all of that. Because listen, I love you as much as I'm going to love you now, no matter what you do good and no matter what you do bad. And we tend to think, that I've got to do something. And we forget that, and going back to this contract illustration, we forget that Jesus has, or God has stamped it, paid in full because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And it's only when we grasp God's grace are we free to serve him for his own sake and not for reward. In verse 29 in Luke chapter 15, we see the son saying this to his dad. All these years, I've been slaving for you. It's incredible that he uses that word. All these years, I've been slaving for you. It's not all these years we've been working together. We've been serving. I've been serving you. No, I've been slaving for you. It's this, it's almost like he has this joyless duty to, um, that characterizes his attitude to his father. And if we begin to think of God as a very uncaring boss, then that's going to creep in into our life. We're going to have this joyless duty. It's drudgery. Oh, man, you mean I need to get up and go serve on a Sunday morning? Or, oh, man, I need to serve my neighbor. God, what are you thinking? Or whatever it is, insert anything that you might want to insert about serving if we think of God as an uncaring boss, as not one who has freely given this gift, then joyless duty, drudgery is going to be a part of our life. But when we see him as a gracious, heavenly father, our attitude will be one then of joyful service because we know why we're doing it. In verse 29, the son also says, I never disobeyed any of your commandments. The older brother wants you and I to know, he wants the father to know, wants everybody to know about his good works and about him trying to prove himself. And it's just like there's every day there's people that are trying to prove themselves. Um, parents trying to produce lovely children so that people can look good on them. 
Workers putting long hours at work so that their boss can look good at them. Or to prove themselves worth. I mean, even to the point where a youth pastor in the city of Gothenburg would go rent an Elvis costume full of sequins, and it's white, and it's too tight, and he would don that on a week and sing Elvis songs. This is what I did. <laughs> and as I think about it, the only reason why I did that is because so the kids could think I was cool. And I look back on it, and that was so stupid. But my, my motivation was not to please God. It was to, to think, wow, look how creative Kevin is. Look how this, look how that. And we're desperately trying to do things to prove ourselves. And there's times where we think that we pulled it off. And then there's times it just seems so fragile and it all shatters. But we live in a constant state of busyness and a constant state of stress. Because we're always striving to put on another great performance. Always worried that this um, facade or charade that we're putting is going to crumble. In verse 30, the son goes on and he says, this son of yours, talking about the younger son, has devoured your property with prostitutes. It's interesting that the story never mentions prostitutes until this time. But the older brother assumes the worst in the younger son to make himself look better, to put him in the worst possible light. And that's what we tend to do, isn't it? If we don't understand fully that God is gracious. Or we begin to disguise our pride with kindness and will patronize people. And we begin to highlight other people's faults and we think that, well, this, this um, standing with God must be like a ladder. So the higher I am on the rung of this ladder, the more that God is going to love me. Or the more that it matters. But God turns that all upside down, as you all know well, that at the foot of the cross, what? We are equally, what? Accepted, loved, but we're also equally guilty, ashamed. There's no one better at the foot of the cross. There's no one worse at the foot of the cross. And that is sometimes hard for us to understand. Jesus tells this parable because the Pharisees are muttering about Jesus eating with sinners. And, and I, I love this particular statement that someone made, that Jesus is right to party with notorious sinners because heaven is a party for sinners. <laughs> Isn't that right? We tend to forget that. I was a sinner. And I needed God's grace. I needed Jesus to save me. I am no better than anyone else. Many of us are confident that we're going to be in heaven someday. But we forget about that particular promise on a Monday or on a Wednesday or on a Friday. And we're still trying to prove ourselves. Think of these questions. Do you ever get angry or moody? Because you want to prove that you're in the right. Does your Christian service feel like it's joyless duty or drudgery? 
Do you ever feel the pressure to perform for your spouse or for your dad or mom or for your boss or, or whoever? Do you serve others so you can feel good about yourself or that you want to impress them? Do you look down on others or do you exaggerate their shortcomings? Do you worry that you won't make the grade in life and God's not going to accept you? Do you enjoy, and this is going to probably cut to the core of who we are, do we enjoy conversations about the shortcomings of others? The older son doesn't see himself as a son at all, but rather as a servant. I love this line, the father has his obedience, but not his love. The father has his obedience in his older son, but not his love. And the question then will go to you and I, does God, the father, have your obedience? Do you outwardly, are you morally good, but you don't really embrace his love for you? Listen to this. I'm just going to read this paragraph. Here's the shocking truth. Without justifying faith, people never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. There are acts that look like good works, but in fact they reflect a belief that the best way to get into God's good books or to prove myself to others is through what I do. I declare myself to be a better Savior than Jesus. We think we must finish off what Christ left undone. And that's why Jesus said in Ephesians, or John chapter 6, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. And there's only one thing that God wants from you and I, and that's to have faith in his son Jesus and the life that he lived and what he did for on the cross and the fact that he defeated death and now is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. When we begin to have faith in that, then everything else is going to flow from that. And the, and the things that I do, there's such a fine line between the things that I do that are good things, but yet can be unhinged by the motive of why I'm doing them. And when I begin to really have faith in Jesus Christ about who God is and what he's done and who I am and all of that, then the things I do will have a right motive, that I can live in freedom, that I don't have to prove anything because I know that the God, my God is gracious to me. The end of that story in Luke chapter 15, verse 28, we see that the father also goes out to the son, just like he went out to the younger son. He goes out to the, young, to the older son, and he pleads with him to come back in. He welcomes him, and he welcomes this self-righteous son. But the story ends. The story doesn't tell us what the older son did. And it's on purpose. It's for you and I. What are we going to do? We're left wondering, I mean, what are we going to do? Will we leave believing that God is gracious or are we going to stay outside and brood and pout and whatever it might be? Thinking that our relationship is like that Nathan's, not Nathan, Newton's ball where this every... You know, action needs a reaction. So God, you love me. So God, I got to do something. God, you love me some more. So God, I got to do something. Instead of God loving me, and he says, stop. Love me back. 
and then live from there. Two things as we live this out practically, and you know this, is we need to begin to nurture our trust, all these four truths, our trust in God's greatness, God's gloriousness, our fear of God's glory, our delight in his, good, in his goodness, our longing for his future, and our rest in his grace for you and I. And we do this by nurturing um, through reading God's word. It's not the act of reading that's important. It's reading to get to know God, to nurture these truths. Through prayer, to nurture these truths. And, and through our DNA groups and missional communities, to begin to have other people that are like-minded that will do this for you and I. Secondly, and, and, and I read this and I just love this. It says, when we face temptation, we need not to say, we need to say not only I should not do this, which we need to say, but also I need not do this. So there's a difference, right? So when tempted to envy someone else's possessions, which sometimes I struggle with, you know, I, I shouldn't, I, I not only need to say, you know, I should not do this or I should not envy, but also I need to say to myself, I need not envy because I have Christ in my life. I hope you see that, right? When tempted to, to worry, to be anxious, we say not only I must not worry, but I need not worry because, because God is in control. And we can do that for every one of these. I must not do this. Not only that, but then I need not do this because God is great, because God is glorious. I need not do this because God is good and because God is gracious. To say to temptation, I must not do this, really speaks of legalism. But to say, I need not do this because God is bigger and better than anything that can come in my life. That, in my opinion, is good news. Four things. This is what we're going to close with. Everything that we believe about God comes through Jesus Christ. He lived it out for us. And so by Jesus, we are secure. By Jesus Christ, we are secure. I don't need to be in control. And there's a psalm for each one of these. And I would love for you to write these down if you, if you have a place to write them down. And then go back at some point and read them. And this one is Psalm 115. By Jesus Christ, not only are we are secure, but we're approved. This idea that God is glorious. Versus, I need approval from man. And that's Psalm 139. The third one, by Jesus, we are satisfied. We are satisfied in him. So we, know, we understand that God is good. And I don't need anything else from anybody else. Psalm 16. And then the last one is by Jesus, we, are, um, we have nothing to prove that God is gracious versus this idea that I must perform, and that is Psalm 73. All of these truths are easy to say, but they're hard to do. They're hard to do because... 
Satan is really, really good at putting lies in my life and getting me to believe them. It's what happened in Genesis 3, and it's continued to happen ever since then. But we can begin to shorten that gap, that narrow that gap, and that gap is never going to be like this until we're in heaven someday. But we can begin to narrow that gap by really beginning to treasure Jesus Christ and God above all things in our life, to nurture that through reading God's word, through prayer, and through being in community with other people. And understand that really what it is, is is to know him deeply and then from that live out our lives. And it embraces all of our values here at Finding Life Church. We don't expect anyone to be perfect. We know we can't be. I don't expect you to come in. We want your mask to come off. My prayer is that these four life-changing truths will begin to, be, to begin to weave into your life more and more and more so that you can become free and live your life in that. 